Hello and welcome to our podcast Coping with the Next Chapter. We are your hosts, Justine T. And Justine D. To begin, let's present ourselves. We are final year nursing students at McGill University and more recently podcast host. We have developed this project in partnership with OpenCope, an organization that strives to help individuals at all age cope with cancer by providing resources, activities and support. Our goal with this podcast is to create a space for sharing experiences related to coping with cancer. First, a disclaimer. Please note that this is a student project. Although we strive to ensure the products are accurate, ethical and credible, by using the products, the user is responsible for possible errors, omissions and outcomes that can be present inadvertently. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Baddest. Tell us a bit about your journey in medicine and what got you into medical oncology. It's an interesting question, and uh, my my thoughts about it change, of course, over time, uh, as I do different things in medicine. But basically, uh, I approach it from two particular two different directions. One is, on an intellectual level, medicine always always attracted me. Uh, it's really quite cutting edge, and as it turns out, if you look at science, because uh, cancer cells could be grown in the lab, uh, we learned more about normal cells by studying cancer cells. So it kind of was a leading edge of science and knowledge, and that attracted me uh, in on one sense. And then on an emotional level, it's kind of an intimate, challenging kind of thing. Even before I got into it. I like. I was very much drawn to that kind of thing, and as I got into it, I, I realized that cancer patients really have, they kind of drop their pretenses very quickly, and you have a certain intimacy uh, with every kind of person once they're in that context because they feel, uh, they feel very frightened, and uh, very threatened, and uh, and so with their oncologists and, and cancer care providers, their nurses as well they uh, feel they can share much more and that they have to. Mm. And in the cancer context, not much seems important except the most important things. So once somebody has a diagnosis of cancer, there's a very clarifying Mm -hmm. aspect to it. The really important things in life stand out and all that crap if I can say that (laughs) on your podcast. Yes, of course. (laughs) Okay. Uh, that seems to kind of fall away, and it's uh, it's very nice to be around that because it's um, it's living in the moment. You know, cancer patients are much more able to uh, to uh, live in the moment, which is something we all try to do, right, in our lives to to not not to sweat the the small stuff and to kind of stay focused on what's really important. But being around cancer patients. You get to feel that and see it and be close to it. So that that's something I only learned since I'm doing it. But I think intuitively I might have had a sense that it's something I wanted to do. What have you learned from working with cancer patients and their families? Uh, first of all, a lot of people when I say, you know, I, I, t- I do uh, cancer care and cancer research, they say, oh, that must be very depressing. In fact, it, it isn't at all. Sometimes it is, but not in general, because what I'm watching is real dignity and real courage and real love of family. And so you get to see people, you know, really kind of facing their fears and their families 
deciding that I'm with you, I love you, and I'm going to support you. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, really encouraging things that I that I see. I, you know, I see the discouraging things as well. But uh, there's a lot to be uh, positive about. And as things get better and better, and they are almost every month, new things are, are evolving. So cancer care is improving. Uh, it's even more encouraging. But, but you know, it's, the fact remains that ultimately a lot of the, our patients die. And so we end up watching the people dealing with that in a, in a very dignified way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about your connection with Hope and Cope? Actually, my mother was a volunteer at Hope and Cope. Oh. And so she worked alongside Sheila Kessner and oh. uh, all of those people. So uh, uh, she was a volunteer and interacting with patients and talking to me about it on the phone. I was living in the States. And when I came back here, you know, I I, I, I met uh, Sheila Kessner and some of the early people who I think most of them have kind of moved on by now. But um, and, you know, then I was seeing patients and the Hope and Cope volunteers uh, were there and they're they're remarkable uh, and uh, they do things that we now sort of understand as normal but you know the patients really um, I mean at, on the in the first instance you know they're serving orange juice to patients and uh, e- escorting them into exam rooms things like that but actually while the orange juice while they're drinking the orange juice a lot of emotional stuff is happening between them and you know the patients choose could be the person that comes in and changes the garbage can in their room. But the patients choose who they're going to link with and who they're going to share with. And oftentimes it's people like the Open Cope volunteers, many of whom have been through the cancer experience. And uh, so, for the, you know, sometimes you don't see the value of something until it's gone. So during the pandemic, they, they had to leave, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We minimized the number of contacts of people and we saw not only were we missing some spare sets of hands to pass out orange juice, but they satisfied an incredible psychosocial, emotional need mm-hmm. of the patients, and that was missing. Mm, yeah. So they're they're incredible and they're uh, irreplaceable. In your professional opinion, what is the role of Hope in coping with cancer? Hope and cope. Uh, Even the title "Espoir c'est la vie" is mm-hmm. is 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 uh, its mission is that message that so long as there's reason, so long as you're alive, there's reason to live, and uh, and that's for you to explore exactly what the reason is. All of the support groups and all of that environment is to help people find a purpose, but there is purpose, and um, and to and we and we support the body and the mind. There's, there's that whole physio uh, component there um, and then using volunteers that's what's really unique about Hope and Cope is that these are essentially lay people but that they've kind of been close to the they're sensitized they've been there yeah and so they can relate and mm-hmm. the patients then feel much more comfortable in sharing what advice would you give to cancer patients that are feeling discouraged about the slow scientific progress in oncology research? 
So first of all, I would I would educate them about how rapid the evolution is, but it, it's never going to be fast enough for them, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, you have to kind of get back to their case and 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 uh, and do the best you can, and make sure that they understand that our mission is uh, to make sure that no stone is left unturned. So I can't promise anyone anything. The one promise I can keep is that no stone will be left unturned, that I will try whatever I can find. I think that's the message we have to try to give to all of our patients, that we'll do whatever we can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And do you have any news about any, like, novel medication or or things that, that you've seen that really changed a patient's life? Yeah, it's happening now regularly every few months there's a there's a groundbreaking new therapy new immunotherapy new targeted therapy it's happening all the time we're doing some of these things ourselves we're studying what we call first in man first in person study where brand new drugs are for the first time being tried in human beings and we're seeing amazing things yeah that's very interesting mm -hmm. so it's happening very very quickly medicine in general but oncology is always Cancer care is always uh, at the cutting edge. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's struggling to cope with a cancer diagnosis? Yeah. Well, the, first of all, the, not to look at Dr. Google. <laughs> That's really not very useful. Mm -hmm. So they need to either get a, 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 a some kind of, um, they need to find some people that they trust. Okay, for information. So the information source has to be someone they trust, and there are websites that are that are that are rational and reasonable, and they can ask about those. Um, the second thing is that they need to understand that uh, they're going to hear some pretty stupid things from their pay, their friends. So some friends who are meaning really well are going to say stupid things that are scary, and they should feel the right to say, you know what, what you're saying now, I don't need that. That's not helping me. Uh, either go away or stop talking about that. Um, and then, um, and they have the right to do that. They have the right to say, I don't want to be with you because you're a downer or you're saying things that are too scary for me. And, but in addition, they're going to be surprised that some people that they didn't even know were really that close are suddenly going to be there for them. Mm. So there are going to be some pleasant surprises for them as well. Um, and they have to uh, talk. They have to communicate. They have to find a support group. They have to make sure they have to make sure their partners, their partner, their family is are informed, and uh, and taken care of as well, um, so that they're strong enough to be able to lean on. So it's a whole family. Mm -hmm. you know, the whole network has to be turned on. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have one thing, one piece of advice, one fact, even that? you wish everyone knew about cancer or about your job or just anything in general that you feel like is not talked about enough? I think, uh, I think, I think everyone, well, I think it's important that for patients to understand that things are rapidly evolving, that there's lots and lots of reason for hope that they have a right to get a second opinion that they should be informed without getting uh, Googled into uh, a bunch of rabbit holes. 
and um, that their their care providers were oh this is very important that their care providers talk to each other so it's not a doctor it's usually used to be just a man in a room making decisions but that it's we're multidisciplinary that we make decisions as a group we have a tumor board we at the Jewish we have nurse doctor partnerships so you know that the, the nurses and their doctors interact I think when you when you talk to patients sometimes they're surprised oh I didn't know that I didn't know that you were talking to my surgeon and to my radiation oncologist that you meet at a tumor board and that you're coordinated they need to understand that a whole team is focused on them uh, from their nurse to their physiotherapist to their surgeon that we interact and that we uh, and they were working together. And through talking with um, some cancer patients, some current cancer patients or some cancer survivors, the one thing that kind of came back the most was how difficult they found talking and getting in contact with their physician was. And I thought that was really interesting because like, of course, our system, as difficult as it is, I know, like, it, the doctors are always, I always see the oncologists, and I, I find that they they are always putting their their patients first, and they're, but what's, what do you have to say about that, I guess? What do you think could improve the patient, physician, or care professional access? Yeah, we could. We have, for example, a patient app called Belong. You'll see the QR codes all over the place there. And that's to communicate with the healthcare providers. Um, a lot of us, I, I did this early on, my personal email uh, is available to all my patients. So they, they write me. Usually, most of them respect my private time, but not always. <laughs> so I think, I think, um, and then we have nurse pivots, they say nurse navigators, they're called, and uh, if patients are on clinical trials, there's more people around them. I mean, it's very important. It's another important message to patients is that they look for clinical trials, especially if there's no obvious optimal treatment for their disease, they should be on a clinical trial. There's no concern about, these things are vetted by ethics committees in terms of safety and- And how? Uh, but, how would you look into a clinical trial? You, you have to just ask your doctor about it, but there also is a website called oncoquebec.com or .ca, I think. And it's it's basically a search engine and you put in your diagnosis and you can get uh, you can get a contact a list of clinical trials in Quebec, anywhere in Quebec that are active. Uh, it tells you who the main physician is who the study coordinator is, how to reach the study coordinator, whether you're eligible, all that information, it's at a very good literacy level for the average person. So, uh, I mean, this is patient empowerment, but patients yeah. need yeah. to look for clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. What coping strategies would you recommend for people who are experiencing anxiety and stress related to their cancer? Yeah, well, Look, everyone's been experiencing anxiety and stress for the past few years, <laughs> few years right? Yeah. So uh, we all had a little taste, a little taste of what cancer patients experience acutely, right? Um, and uh, I mean, the answer has been to be, you know, the answer has been exactly what people couldn't do 
especially cancer patients during the pandemic, which was to be with other people. But they had to just choose the people in their bubble that they could count on. And all the things I was saying, these people also need to be supported Mm -hmm. so that they're strong enough to lean on. Um, But there are also health professionals, so you need to ask. You need to go to Hope and Cope and speak and participate in the groups. Some people say, I'm not a group person, you know, but sometimes when they try it, it's not so bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes people don't feel great in a group of strangers revealing themselves. But actually, sometimes, I, you know, for a couple of years, they did it only on Zoom, and a lot of people felt a little more comfortable sharing on Zoom. It's a, we're learning a lot of strange things like that. And and then I think, you know, uh, physical exercise is incredibly important for anxiety and stress, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, because the sometimes people deal with anxiety and stress by eating junk (laughs) and that's not good at all. Right. So, I mean, so, you know, swimming, running, walking, whatever it is, or if you go to the gym doing that, if you can, uh, that's really important. But I think getting information, finding a support group, if you need to, asking for a psychologist. So you have to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Now, in recent years, we've seen people feeling profound dep- anxiety and depression, existential depression, where uh, sometimes they're given antidepressants, they don't work. We're now seeing new data that uh, that psilocybin actually is, you know, uh, not LSD, but uh, at psilocybin, psychedelic drugs, one exposure, one trip at psilocybin, and they're usually done with an experienced guide in a quiet place where we're actually thinking, we're going to do this, and we're thinking of that nice room in um, at Hope and Hope at, uh, at the Wellness Center. Um, and uh, people who are trained to sit, you know, uh, 12 hours with someone who's having a psychedelic experience, and the data from a couple of centers in the States and in the UK shows that even people with profound uh, drug-resistant depression get a real bounce. Uh, I mean, a real, they, their lives change for three to six months. Wow. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's kind of a reset. It's like a, mm-hmm. like, yeah. it's like ECT. It's like, uh, yeah. it's like shock therapy, but it, it kind of resets things. Mm-hmm. And um, and and it lasts for many months. And these are people that are very profoundly depressed. And so we're testing it in people with with depression who have cancer. They're not going to die in, in six months or in a year or two years, but they're depressed about the fact that the end of their mm-hmm. lives are there. And uh, so that's who we're testing it in. That's really. Have you met Melissa Henry? No, no. She's a psychologue, and she does. Um, she works with head and neck patients who are often have a high rate of depression and even suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so we put in a proposal. We're going to wait to hear from the, the funding agency in April or May, but to do clinical trial of psilocybin. So we'll be giving we'll be giving uh, psychedelics out mm-hmm. in so the nice. coming months at Hope and Cope. I was wondering. Um, yeah, I know you're the chief of the oncology department at the Jewish. What was your mission or did you have one? What motivated you to kind of take the reins of the department? Oh, that just sort of evolved over time. I was just kind of next in line and I had ideas and people wanted to listen to my ideas. And so there was no one that 
opposed it and you know uh, and i didn't see it as a kind of power trip it was just something that uh, you know i part of what i like to do is to promote other people so i consider my leadership i can measure my leadership in the number of other people's careers that i i helped mm-hmm. uh, but you know i'm not going to do this forever and other people who want to do it will will do uh, other things it's um it's something that just sort of evolved over time yeah i don't work alone i work in partnership with with Karine Lepage who's the who's the deputy nursing director and responsible not only for cancer but for other things internal medicine mm. and uh, we we plan things together and do things together always that's really interesting and one last question what's your favorite part about your job yeah you know what delivering on anything I, you know, it's the same, you know, it's the nicest thing is to come home at the end of the day, no matter what happened, feeling that, you know, it, that you did the best you could. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the past week, I've given someone some extraordinarily positive results, but I've also watched, um, uh, helped a person kind of on the last leg of understanding. He's been through a couple of clinical trials and his tumor's progressing and he needs to kind of turn his attention from his tumor to himself and his family because he's going to die soon and helping him mm-hmm. uh, see that and watching him go from kind of a catatonic fear to actually starting to talk because it was kind of a weight off his shoulders. He was, mm-hmm. I was telling him, you don't have to struggle anymore. Um, that, that as sad as it was, it made me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got a very nice grant this past week, a research grant. So all those things, you know, it's wow. an interesting life because we're do- I'm doing both uh, laboratory and research administrative kinds of things and clinical care. So anything where, you know, I feel like, you know, whatever, whatever it was, it was a good result in relation to the effort that I put in that I, I, I worked with other people, other people will benefit from it. Those are the things. That made me feel good. Yeah. Like anyone else, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Batis, for sharing your experience with us. We invite all listeners to go to the podcast forum on our podcast website to share your reflections to this week's episode ask us questions, and connect with other people from Hope and Cope community. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening.